Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time. We knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on PressBox Access. You spend nearly 40 years covering baseball, you've got some stories to tell. Claire Smith certainly does, and we're lucky to have her share some tales as our guest. Claire was the first woman and the fourth African-American to earn the highest honor given by the Baseball Writers Association of America, the Career Excellence Award. For many journalists, she has been much more than just a writer and an editor. So this is a special episode. We're going to do it in two parts. Yeah, yeah, baseball has a clock now. But what's the rush? We have Claire Smith with us. She has stories. Enjoy part one. Claire, welcome to Pressbox Access. It's a real honor to have you on our show. Well, thank you for having me, Todd. It's a pleasure to be here and nice to put a face to a name that I've heard so often for so many years. Well, they're all lies about me, so don't, you know, don't believe what you've heard. <laughs> okay. okay. Hey, I want, I want to begin with a quote that I know is special to you. Um, it's from Jackie Robinson, who said, a life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. Why is that so special to you? Well, it reminds everyone that no matter how much fame you have or in these day and age celebrity, um, famous for being famous, uh, there's a whole lot that's bigger than you. And if you don't make an effort to remember that and and try to make something better for someone other than yourself or look past your nose, as I used to tell my boys, um, then you've wasted a lot of time and space on this planet. Jackie certainly had every right to, to put that on his uh, gravestone because he did tried to make such a huge difference in this country and this world. Well, Jackie's quote certainly applies to you, Claire. You've impact, impacted a lot of lives of young journalists, especially of color and, and other women in the business while covering baseball for nearly 40 years. And, and you're impacting young reporters now as an assistant professor at a practice at Temple University where you are co-director of the Claire Smith Center for Sports Media. I love it. The center is named after you. That's that's oh, amazing. No. What what were they thinking? I have no idea what they were thinking. <laughs> but uh, just being with the students and seeing their enthusiasm, it gives me such hope that even though the journalism world that we knew um, for most of our lives seems to be drifting away, mm -hmm. uh, 
where the eight track tape uh, tapes of journalism. Um, <laughs> I know they they will keep the the ideal alive because they'll invent new ways to get the word out, literally get the written word out. And um, they are so anxious to do it. They don't see danger um, signs flashing the way we probably did on <coughs> our our last days of mm-hmm. journal- my last days of journalism. I can't say that applies to you. You're still going strong. Um, but yeah, it gives gives me a lot of hope. All right. Well, they're lucky to have you, that's for certain, as a shepherd. And I wanted to take you back to those eight-track days. (laughs) (laughs) Back to the days of covering baseball in the 80s and 90s and onward. Uh, But I wanted to start with, first of all, like, why why baseball? You know, I mean, sports writing is is an interesting gig, and baseball writers— they're like a different ilk, you know, the seam heads. You know, yeah. I used to spend a lot of time around the baseball writers, but I was just on the fringe of the pack. I wanted to see why at some point in your life you thought, you know what, I want to cover baseball. Well, you you kind of hit on it when you opened the show with a quote from Jackie, because Jackie had everything to do with my love of baseball. And I, when I finally figured out what, I wanted to do, which was write and write for a newspaper. I had two two goals. Um, one was either to be the next uh, combination of Woodward and Bernstein, mm-hmm. having grown up in that era, and the other was uh, you mentioned Jerry Eisenberg being a guest prior uh, to my silly appearance here. Uh, I read a book in college written by Jerry called The Roar of Sneakers, and I was just enthralled with the, his storytelling abilities and the stories he told in, in a collection of essays. Um, I put that together with my love of baseball. To get a degree in public relations at that time, back in the day, you needed to take at least one journalism course, and mm. I did that. And I have to tell you, the light bulbs by the millions went on, hmm. and it 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 dawned on me that I'd much rather write about baseball than be in the industry of baseball. I could uh, write my own thoughts. I I thought at the time I could pick my own subjects. I could be. Roger Angel, I could be, <laughs> you know, I could run all around the world writing as brilliantly as Red Smith and Dave Anderson and so on and so forth. So I switched to journalism. Well, it was a good switch, right? I mean, think about this. All these years later, in 2017, you're standing at a podium in Cooperstown, New York, the Hall of Fame inductions. You got baseball dignitaries around you. You got fans sitting out there in front of you. And you're awarded the Baseball Writers Association of America's Career Excellence Award, the Spink Award, J.G. Taylor Spink Award. It's the highest honor a baseball writer can get. What is it like standing at that podium at the hallowed grounds of Cooperstown? Well, it was otherworldly. I just, to be on that stage and and be up on that stage with a, a passel 
of Hall of Famers, first of all. I was sitting next to Rachel Robinson because she was there to receive the Buck O'Neill Award Mm -hmm. for long and meritorious service to the game. And right behind me, uh, Sandy Koufax and Joe Morgan, two Hall of Famers who were very, very, very dear to me. Um, Sandy, without knowing it, uh, was a hero of mine since the 1960s. And I finally got to meet him. And you couldn't ask for a kinder, sweeter, gentler, gentlemanly person in on this planet. If you can find one, Todd, let me know. Um, but he is an amazing gentleman. Joe Morgan, my friend, um, I can't tell you how many times I think of all the people that I covered in baseball that I miss him the most. Uh, this side of Don Baylor, um, they were amazing. Yeah, you worked with Joe many, many years at ESPN doing the Sunday night baseball telecast. Uh, you worked as an editor. So what was it about Joe that was so special for you? Joe was so honest and so caring about the game. He cared about it on every single, single level, but he cared about the young African-American men and the women in the game who came after him and were just trying to embrace a game that didn't always embrace them. Uh, They Mm. wanted to stay. They loved the game. Why would you want uh, uh, a 13-month-a-year game if you didn't love it, if you didn't want those hours, if you didn't want the night shift for for every single day of your career. And many in the front offices obviously start at nine in the morning and, mm-hmm. and don't leave till the night game is over. So Joe cared about every single person in the game and he really cared about the preservation of legacies such as Negro Leaguers and the underserved and underappreciated stars like Frank Robinson. He mm-hmm. he worshipped Frank. He grew up watching Frank. And he knew that Frank was undervalued by the game, under, you know, I don't know if you want to say idolized, but Frank deserved much, much more. He deserved so much. Same with Roberto Clemente. Joe... Little Joe, he was a captain of every team he served on, even the board of directors at the <laughs> Hall of Fame. He he saw himself as captain, as a as a spokesperson. As for work covering him and then working with him, Joe could break it down. He mm-hmm. really could. And by the time we did work together, we kind of had this pact. I told him that I wouldn't couldn't ever tell him anything about baseball. And I learned something new every time we spoke. But I asked him to kind of view me in the same way when it came to journalism. I would do everything I could to help him uh, with the information that he took in front of the camera. Mm -hmm. But um, as as I trusted him, to always lead me in the right direction. All I asked of him was to trust me 
that I would never let him down. Well, that working relationship certainly showed in his willingness to learn, and he obviously became one of the great announcers that we've ever had in baseball. Right, and he was that before I got there. So when you come in the middle of a 25-year run that he and John Miller had, it's asking them a lot to listen to a new voice, and he was willing. John was willing as well. Mm -hmm. Oral Hershiser, so many people who were there. But Joe was just special, and I miss him every day. Yeah, I think we all do. I always thought Joe would have been a great commissioner of baseball. Yes, yes. You mentioned love of the game. And uh, I know your father was a painter, told you, hey, what are you going to do? Your mother, Bernice, was a chemist, but she taught you to love of uh, Jackie Robinson. She was an immigrant from Jamaica who listened to sports, you know, back home when she, when she was in Jamaica with her, living with her grandmother. She taught you about Jackie. The nuns at St. John's Catholic Elementary School in Philly, suburb of Elkins Park, they showed you the Jackie Robinson movie when you were a kid. So you were all in on baseball from the start. Do you need a love of the game to be a baseball writer of almost 40 years? Uh, I think you better have it because the alternative is to be cynical and bitter. And I think that if you start to feel that way, if you start to take out uh, any frustration or anger or despondency over your lot in life, you're going to take it out in print. And you're going to perhaps be uh, harsher than you should. Um, if you're a beat writer, you're supposed to be objective. If you're a baseball analyst or national baseball writer, you're supposed to be to be learnedly analytical, not uh, use words as weapons. Mm -hmm. And if you're a columnist, you have a, a, an even greater responsibility because you have been given the right to go to, to war, if you will, with a billion barrels of ink and how <laughs> to use those billions of barrels matter because the people you cover are human beings. That's the way I always looked at it. Right, right. Sometimes you forget that, right? Sometimes it's easy to sit back and make all these judgments and you right. forget the human aspect of it. Right. And and you get and you do get frustrated. You're there, you're you have no life off the field. Um as a single mom, I'm trying to raise my son knowing that it's, uh, what did I do? Why am I doing this? You ask yourself, why, 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 why all the time? And and the frustrations hit you. And then you see something on the field that's just wondrous, or you see something that really, really needs to be held up to baseball's mirror, and, and you ask the question, why are you doing this? Why aren't you doing this? Why... Is there in 2023, why are there only two African-American managers? Mm -hmm. and, and, and one of them, God bless him, is 73 years old. So who knows how long Dusty's going to stay. Yeah, but Dusty Baker, the great path. Dusty Baker. The great Dusty Baker. He's been in the game over 50 years. So um, why, why is this still an issue, especially since Jackie's last uh, public appearance, he asked about managers and yeah, seventy-two World Series when he threw out the first pitch a few days before he died. 
Exactly. He wanted to know why there weren't any third base coaches who were African-American because that used to be the stepping stone into the manager's office. Um, but we're still, we're still asking those questions, um, only it's a different generation. And I think that we're on the verge of seeing African-Americans just throw up their hands and say, obviously, the game doesn't want us. Um, the, if you had a couple of years ago, I believe it was 11 teams with one or fewer African-American players. Mm-hmm. Well, where are the managers, the coaches and managers right. going to come from? Right. Where's Bob Watson, the general manager, going to come from? Or Kenny, you know, uh, Kenny Williams in Chicago. Where are they coming from if if not up through the ranks? Well, that's why I think it's so important that we do have more perspective of people of color in sports media. And we certainly didn't have enough of that when you started. You know, we didn't have many women. We didn't have many people of color. Um, but you started in, in 82 and with baseball. You had worked previously, Bucks County and at the Philly Bulletin. But yeah. at the Hartford Current decided in 1982 that they wanted you to cover baseball. Um, and not just cover baseball, but cover the Yankees, the New York Yankees. Yes. And not just the Yankees, but the end of the Bronx Zoo Yankees. Oh, they were So what was that like showing up when George Steinbrenner was, you know, at the height of his chaos with the Yankees in 1982? It was quite a season, wasn't it? It was. I didn't get there till June, so they were already on their, I believe, second manager in, the, in Gene Michael. And uh, by the end of the season, they had gone... Our roster had uh, hosted 54 different players. Now, it's kind of tough on a 25-man roster. Um, and I believe they ended up employing six pitching coaches that season. So, three, they had yeah. three managers by the end of the year, three right? Managers, six pitching coaches, 54 uh, play, different players. Um, and... Yeah, it was a zoo. It was crazy. It was just, I don't know. The Steinbrenner era was amazing. And the chaos lasted for so, 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 so long. I think the person maybe most responsible for calming it down and making it uh, livable for the players was Joe Torrey in 94. Mm -hmm. Because he basically after being second-guessed by the boss in print, um, he, he called the writers together and, and basically uh, Joe's message was, you can talk to him or you can talk to me. Hmm. And it kind of shut off the faucet, if you will, of the anonymous quotes, are, as Mike McElary once wrote, an anonymous owner once told. <laughs> told me this or that because <laughs> George would call you back. It didn't matter your circulation or whatever. If you put in a phone call, he'd call you back. It might give it. Be. Give us your give us your favorite George Steinbrenner moment. Your personal favorite. Well, uh, the one time he lost his temper with me, he he said something to the effect of. Um, you and the other idiots. <laughs> I'm sure that he might have used harsher language if I wasn't a woman. But George, 
like to use the idiots unless the idiots uh, wrote something that he disagreed with. And then he could go off on you, but he wouldn't cut you off because he, oh man, he he just lapped up the attention. He might have been the first Donald Trump um, mm. in that he loved the media he loved the attention. My goodness, imagine George on on social media. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's quite a thought. <laughs> I know it's it's scary to think of um, how far we've come, and even scarier to think what if George had come along with us. He could well, be charming. He could be incredibly generous. Um, when. Steve Buckley, our, the baseball writer who, who stepped in for me when I became a national uh, baseball writer for The Current, he became, Steve became the Yankees beat writer. And in his first trip to Fort Lauderdale, his plane lands, he goes to pick up his car, and he has a message waiting for him um, from our editor that his brother had been killed in a car accident. Mm. So Steve um, has to go back to Boston. Obviously, his brother left uh, young children. And when George heard about this, George uh, took it upon himself to assure that the children had college education funds. Really? Yeah, that's that's wow. the other side of George. Um and then there could be the funny side of George watching him trying single-handedly to get a rain-soaked uh, baseball field together in Fort Lauderdale because it was going to be a good gate. It must, it, maybe it was the Red Sox. Who knew which team was coming through Fort Lauderdale that spring uh, training night? But he was out in in uh, wading boots, I guess the kind of boots you use to stand in a stream and fish. And he had a squeegee and he had a helicopter above him trying to use its blades to blow the water off the field. But there was George out there <laughs> to squeegee the right field. That's an image. <laughs> yeah, it, it was him. And we just sat in a press box like, uh, yeah, this guy is is a lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> well, he had his foil, too, in Billy Martin. And Billy, um, I think he was manager several times when when you were on the beat in the 80s. I mean, that, their, their yeah. relationship was, let's say, complex. It was combustible. It really was. And the, the fuel that uh, served as the, the fire spreader was alcohol. Um, sadly, Billy um, had a, had issues with alcohol. He'd arrive back on the scene. Uh, I covered number four, and as a national writer, number five, his uh, fourth and fifth terms there. But whenever George started saying things like, have you seen Billy lately? He's looking tanned and rested. That became the... the uh, Notice that he was thinking in terms of bringing Billy back. So uh, that became one of our catchphrases. Uh, Billy's looking tanned and rested. Oh, no. 
(laughs) Here we go again. Here we go again. And (laughs) Billy would come in tanned and rested. And it was like watching the uh, picture of uh, Dorian Gray. Billy would literally sell his soul, if he could, to be the manager of the team he loved the most. It was where... His heart was broken when he was traded away, mm-hmm. uh, blamed for corrupting uh, Mickey and Whitey, Whitey. Yep. and the whole group when he was the kid. Uh, how could he corrupt the stars, you know, but he was the one they shipped away. Um, and all he ever wanted to do was be back with the Yankees and manage the Yankees. So he'd come back and then the madness of the circus as as uh, it was called with Reggie and all his inner personalities, George with all his um, hands hands and feet on management um, <laughs> and and Billy leaning into uh, his comfort space, which was usually a late night bar or or what have you. It was just a combination doomed from the moment he walked back in. You know, I didn't punch that dogie. I didn't do this. Uh, one's a liar and the other one's convicted. Billy's uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and Reggie saying all the uh, stuff that he would say, whichever Reggie showed up that day. Um, <laughs> I came in in 82 and it was the year after uh, it was the year Reggie had moved on to the Angels, so I didn't actually cover him as a Yankee. Mm-hmm. I just saw the the residuals of <laughs> his stay there. So uh, he was he was his return prompted the infamous chant from the crowds. I don't know if you're allowed to say this. Go but, ahead, yeah. This is a podcast. Uh, we can say whatever the hell we want, Claire. Steinbrenner sucks, you know that way and. <laughs> But Reggie wanted to make a statement with his return, and not just a statement at the plate, but a statement from the second he he came into Yankee Stadium. So he didn't go out um, of the tunnel until 6.44, noting the time so he could (laughs) honor his own number (laughs) that had not been retired. That's um, tremendous when you're honoring your own number. <laughs> right. But that's when he was going out. Rod Carew laid out a white carpet of towels leading down the runway from the clubhouse to the dugout for Reggie. <laughs> and and the crowd was just and went wild. And correct me if I'm wrong, I believe Reggie hit a home run and that prompted the the chance to start. Um <laughs> So it was always, it was always something Bill Madden used to tell me um, about mid-game. He said he would walk by and and say, "Clary, we haven't even seen what we're going to be writing about uh, tonight." <laughs> and he was always right. Um, and often, what we were writing about had nothing to do with the game. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There was always some kind of sideshow to fill the notebook, to fill the column inches. And, you know, covering those Yankees throughout the 80s for the Hartford Current, it must have set up a great base for you for the rest of your career when you went on to the New York Times and the Philadelphia Inquirer and then on to ESPN for the final stage of your career. You know, just being around that that scene, uh, you, you know, your news judgment and your antenna was always up. And uh, that's why I... Th- you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it probably set you up for uh, success in terms of just how you approached your job, right? Yes. When your first full-time beat is one of the toughest on the planet, this side of maybe covering a war or a famine or or something where lives are literally at stake, it just Mm -hmm. felt like your life was at stake. And it was when you had the sympathy of beat writers from the 29 other baseball teams who just had to think about baseball and not and not cover a circus. As Greg Nettles said, he always wanted to be a baseball player and, and work for a circus, and he got to do both. Um, <laughs> that was one of the great lines from those yeah, days. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, yes, it was a, a tremendous uh, learning experience. It took its toll. I used to think my life was being measured in dog years, not regular years, because <laughs> the burnout uh, was real. And mm-hmm. so I was able to do it for eight seasons. And then I, I said to my boss, I can't do this anymore, um, but I want to cover baseball. And that's when I became the second uh, national baseball writer in the country second to Tracy Ringlesby of the Dallas Morning News. Mm -hmm. Claire, you were, uh, when you showed up in 1982, you were were the first full-time beat writer as a woman in baseball. Um, There had been other women writers at the time, but nobody on a day-to-day beat like that. How were you received by the Yankee players, the coaches, the managers, and the other writers? I never had a problem with the Yankees, uh, coaches, the managers, um, the players were fine. The other writers were extremely supportive. Um, it's, it's a f- sophisticated town. It's, it's, it's not even a town, it's city. It's urbane, it's sophisticated, it uh, likes to think of itself and properly so, I think, as being progressive. I also came along in 82, well, the lawsuit that Melissa Lutke in Sports Illustrated filed against the Yankees to open the Yankees clubhouse and the Mm -hmm. Mets clubhouse, um, filed against the city since those were public parks. Uh, That was in 78. So the teams were... The two teams were uh, used to seeing women reporters. Jane Gross covered uh, home and home. So she had kind of a full 
time beat when she would fill in for the the beat writers at home and they could have some downtime at home. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she was brilliant. She was my friend, my mentor. I stood in her shadow, even though she was only five foot tall at the, Mm -hmm. at the most and maybe weighed 90 pounds, but I stood in her shadow and I was in awe of her and I'm really, she passed away this year. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of, kind of, um, it's it's nice to reminisce about Jane and and remember how much she meant to so many. Helene Elliott, who's now in the Hockey Hall of Fame, and yeah, we featured Helene on our show. Yeah, she was great. Yeah. yeah, so she was there, and it was not an unusual thing in New York City. Uh, what was unusual was the fact that I only knew of. Uh, maybe one other African-American woman. So that was, that was evident that something <laughs> unusual uh, would occur when I walked in a clubhouse if the player saw an African-American woman walk in. Today, um, maybe if there isn't uh, maybe uh, five to ten women going through clubhouses before every game, that would be unusual. But back then, there were maybe five to ten women, period, covering. Uh, So you would just really look forward to getting to a town where there uh, there was another woman covering. The telephone was very important because we had a support group that was Mm -hmm. beyond compare, especially if someone ran into some real difficulty, your obligation was to get in touch with that uh, person as soon as possible and let them talk it out. And, and there would be tears. There was crying in baseball, but we did it privately. And we did it until the tears were replaced with laughter. Those, those phone calls could go on for hours. Uh, deep into the night once you heard that there was an issue somewhere. Well, you certainly ran into an issue, and it's well-documented, October 2nd in 1984. Uh, I know you've spoken a lot about this in the past, but as a history show here, I think it's really important to document this. So if you don't mind, I want to take you back to that. It's Game 1 of the 1984 National League Championship Series, and it's in Chicago. The Cubs are hosting the Padres, and the Cubs win the game. And you go down to go to both locker rooms, and you first go to the Padres' locker room. And you go in there, and, well, you tell us. What the hell happened? Well, to set this up, you knew that there were holdout teams in the National League Um, Lee McPhail in the American League uh, had a policy that clubhouses were open to any um, credentialed reporter. So there was never a guard standing at at the door of American League teams. I I covered an American League team, so I spent most of my time doing that and not having issues while the reporters who covered National League teams knew that San Diego, um, Montreal, uh, Atlanta, and maybe Cincinnati, depending on the manager or or what have you, could have a closed-door policy. 
And there was very little you could do about it because the National League president had a had laissez-faire approach to it, let the teams make their own decisions, and he was hands-off. Uh, so my editor reached out to the league and said, look, we're sending Claire Smith the cover. Are we going to have an issue with the Padres? And the response was pretty clear. We got a letter back saying that during the 162-game season, it's the club's locker room. During the postseason, the first rounds, it's the league's locker room, and the league's rules will uh, apply and you have access. And then in the World Series, it's the commissioner's locker room, and the same thing would be in effect that the commissioner's credentials would uh, allow for access. Mm -hmm. So we went really, uh, really confident that there wouldn't be an issue go in for the post-game in game one and get forcibly removed. Forcibly in that I was shouted at, um, uh, cursed at, told to get out, and on my way towards the door, I was literally pushed in the back. Someone's hand pushed me towards the door. Wow. And I was pushed out. Um, Do you know who it was that pushed you? No, I think it was a clubhouse um, uh, attendant, if you will, someone that worked for the Padres. It wasn't a player, I don't believe. So let me set the scene here. I mean, I covered some games at, you know, the old Wrigley Park. The old clubhouses were right there underneath the stands. Mm -hmm. The writers are in there, the clubhouse, doing what you're trying to do, your job. They push you out of the clubhouse door, which means you're out there underneath the stands, basically. Yeah. By yourself. The ugly, dimly lit stands uh, above you, and, and you're in a tunnel that was built maybe in 1917. So it's mm-hmm. not a pleasant place to be. And um, the writers, I think, well, I know they witnessed this, but... They had deadlines and obligations. So as angry as they might have been about what was happening, they weren't going to leave. They weren't going to stop doing their jobs. But Henry Hecht of the New York Post did did come to you, right? So Henry is coming towards the clubhouse. I'm out in the hallway and Henry, some he he figures it out immediately and and asked me what he can do and I told what I needed. And I told him I needed quotes and who do you need? And I told him, well, please tell Steve. Before Henry came out, the media relations director for the Padres came out and asked me who he could get. And each person I asked for, the pitchers, uh, who would be speaking to, I believe, what was a 9 nothing loss, um, they all declined to come out. So I wasn't getting anywhere with this separate mm. but equal access. Uh, that's what I call it because I knew what it was. I was being segregated out of the clubhouse. Um, right. So Henry, I tell him, uh, tell Steve, as in Steve Garvey. I knew Steve when he was a Dodger. I knew Steve 
when I was just a fan loving the Dodgers and going to see them in Philadelphia. And Steve always came out to the bus and talked to fans. And I would go as a high schooler. I would go as a college Mm -hmm. student. And we got to know each other. And he was always amazingly friendly. Um, When I started covering baseball, nothing changed. So he was someone, uh, what we call Todd, a go-to guy. We always could depend on those go-to guys. Yeah, he would talk after a bad loss or a tough moment. Right. He would stand up. We called him stand-up go-to guys, like you said. So yes. Steve comes out of the clubhouse. Yes. Out, you are alone. Set the scene for me there. Well, I'm alone, and it's starting the adrenaline that drives you <laughs> to to get down to your job, do it well. All that that rush that keeps you going just was it drained out of me, and I got. I started to break down. I I got really emotional when I saw him come out. And um, Steve said to me that basically take your time. I'm here for as long as you need. So I kind of was able to blurt out a couple questions, get his responses. And he saw that I was very emotional and he said that was that was okay. Uh, but get yourself together because you have a job to do. Hmm. And that just made me pull myself together and and go over to the Cubs. Uh, by the time I got there, the Cubs were well aware of what had happened. And a couple of the Cubs coaches, players, what have you, I had covered in New York um, with mm-hmm. the Mets and Yankees, and they were furious. Yeah, they knew you, right? So, yes, yeah. Yes, uh, George Fraser, Don Zimmer, I believe, was on the coaching staff, and they were just furious about what had happened in their ballpark. The next day, the whole world knew, at the Baseball Writers Association, they were really uh, ready to go to bat for me, uh, excuse the pun, go to war, excuse the phrase, uh, and take on the Padres. And they were ready to take on the National League. And the commissioner is Peter Ubroff at the time. First week. Yeah, first week. Welcome. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, yes. Coming off of the very sophisticated, well-run Olympics that he had put together in Los Angeles and coming into baseball. Uh, chaos and its 19th century approach mm. to, to the media. Um, Peter was, he, he wasn't one to tolerate this. And he, once he found out, he issued an edict saying that credentialed reporters uh, are to be allowed in every major league clubhouse, period, taking that that responsibility out of the hands of the league presidents and and team owners, managers, players. He just put his foot down. So those were the headlines. The lasting impact was when we show the movie to students today, let them wear towels where women recount their first experiences in clubhouses 
the lawsuits and and also the ugliness that mm-hmm. they they faced in those uh, early years. One of the questions the students ask is about uh, what we did to see to our mental health. And the answer is, back then, no one talked about mental health. No one talked about the psychological impact of these things, of the sleepless nights and and those phone calls you needed with your friends. Mm-hmm. Just be able to get through the night to the next day and keep doing your job. Todd, I don't know of any other woman other than Katie Feeney and Phyllis Marriage who stayed with this game as long as I have. Right. Uh, just goes to show you that it's probably a good idea to have more than one original thought in your career. Yeah, and you were you were referring there to administrators in, in Major League Baseball there. Katie yes, and, the, yeah. the wonderful... Um, late, great Katie Feeney and Phil's marriage, who who basically, uh, they oversaw the media relations for the commissioner's office. And, um, but as far as being on the beat or being national baseball writer, most women peeled off to go to other sports or to get out of the business altogether or turn to news writing Jane became an amazing news writer for the Times. Mm-hmm. But you stayed with it, Claire. You stayed yeah. in baseball. I'm, I'm curious. You said when, when Gar- Steve Garvey says to you, I'll stay here as long as you need, but you get yourself together because you got a job to do. You have said that that was like a defining moment in your career. Why? Well, it made me refocus in real time and realize he was right. There was a an editor waiting for my game story back in Hartford. There there was no time to run into the ladies' room and cry and or pack up and leave or go find uh, a, a Padres official to uh, yell at, scream at. I didn't want to make a scene. Writers never want to be the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I did what I had to do. And Steve helped me do that, and he was there reminding me that I had what I need to get through that moment, hmm. and and I needed to go gather on the other side what I needed from the Cubs, then get upstairs and gather myself and write a game story. I don't remember much about rushing upstairs and writing, and I think that that you recognize that that adrenaline carries you through those moments. Sometimes you go back and read a game story or whatever, and you don't even know if that's you. It doesn't sound like you. That's what he was reminding me, that it was the job and everything that came with it. But the most important thing was to do the job. Well, I think it's interesting that, that Garvey's daughter, Olivia, is a TV sports reporter in Palm Springs, California. And, and she's reached out to you, right? You got, you have mentored her somewhat. Yes. Um, she's in DC now. She's DC. Uh, okay. All right. Big time, um, on air, uh, reporter in DC and she's terrific. She really is. And the fact that his daughter went into this field 
shows that what Steve did in 82, it wasn't just a lark. He obviously instilled in his sons and daughters the fact that they should have the the right and the equal opportunity to do what they wanted to pursue. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Olivia grew up in a baseball family and loved sports. And she carried that all the way through, to, as I did, to finding a way to to cover sports because that was her her dream. And with the the support of her dad, he kept me informed of every step she took and and asked for advice along the way and and what organizations should she uh, join, like uh, the Association for Women in Sport Media mm-hmm. and things things like that. And it's been wonderful watching her grow into the powerhouse reporter that she is. She's a, a lovely woman, and both uh, Candace and Steve Garvey, her parents, are just so proud of her. And I'm proud to know her. I'm proud to be in the same profession with her. Well, I think it shows not just what Steve did in that moment, but more importantly, what you did. You did go do your job that day in a, in a horrific moment, and you stayed with it. You stay not just in sports journalism, you stayed in baseball, the culture that was trying to shoo you away. You refused to leave and you made made a career out of it. And that, I think, inspired so many young sports writers, sports reporters like Olivia Garvey to say, I can do this too. And that must that must make you feel proud. Well, it does. And and you don't look at it as oh, wow, look what I did. You know, I didn't get to the point of reminiscing until 2017 when the writers decided to select me for the award, once known as the J.G. Taylor Spink Award. Mm -hmm. Um, And then people started asking the the whys, the hows, when, who are you, that sort of thing. And... My son, Joshua, asked me probably the most important question in that year, and that was, what does this mean, um, Mom? And that really started me thinking. Also, Todd was invited to go to a lot of campuses to speak to journalism classes. I went to the awesome convention. I was invited out to the Kansas City the Negro Leagues Museum, a lot of a lot of places, Florida State, Columbia University, the University of Kansas, places that I never dreamed would want to hear from me, but they did. And it started to occur to me that over the 40 years that I thought I was just getting up every day and going to work, that there were actually people who were watching me get up and go. <laughs> and go to work and and wanting that to mean something um, in terms of encouraging themselves to do the same or follow in the footsteps or, or what have you. So I never looked at it that way. I never thought of myself as a role model. And in retrospect, I'm kind of glad that I uh, behaved myself because there were people (laughs) watching 
And to hear them to this day, the youngsters come up and and say thank you and and things like that. Um, it's humbling. Well, I think about this, Claire. I think about you in that October day in 1984, being alone, standing out there, alone, outside the clubhouse. And then I think about that day in December of 2016 when the baseball writers announced that you were going to be awarded the Career Excellence Award. And they asked you to come up the podium and say a few words in that moment. And then you called up all the other women writers in the room, the room. Writers came up. There's like 20 women standing around you. Pretty amazing. The contrast between being alone in 84 and sharing that moment with 20 other female writers, I think that shows a lot, right? It did. Um, as I stood up there, I looked around the room and saw how many women were in, in that room. And there were maybe a couple hundred writers in there because it's our winter convention, if you will, at the winter meetings every year. Mm -hmm. And also seeing how many writers I grew up with and consider not only sisters, but brothers. It takes a village. It really does when you're on the road and closer to that group than you are with people that work for your newspaper. There are people I knew on the phone at newspapers that I never met. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I knew the writers I worked with went to bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and weddings and sadly some funerals for those uh, brothers and sisters. Um, but I wanted the women to come up and share the award because I know I, I didn't walk that path by myself. More and more joined along the way, and that was great. Um but to have Lisa Neyes there and so many of the pioneers, if you will, who had it so much worse out in the in the land uh, west of the Hudson River. <laughs> right. Um, like I said, New York was never a problem, but I had one bad day. So many of those women had, if they got through a week without one bad day, it was a triumph because they had it so much harder than I did. So I wanted to share that moment, but I also asked the women standing to my left and right to look out at the men in the audience and applaud them because without the baseball writers' uh, support, solid support, we wouldn't have been able to do what we did. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, it was a terrific occasion, again, humbling and then it was the sprint to Cooperstown a <laughs> half, uh, 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 half a year later. Well, it does take a village, right? And, I, and thankfully, the village does include many more women, many more people of color, that village of sports writing, uh, sports journalism. It was an honor to talk with Claire, who had a big impact on bringing much-needed diversity to sports journalism. And she had so many other great baseball stories to share, we let the tape roll longer than usual. So join us for part two, more from my conversation with Claire. In that episode, you'll hear about people and moments that she considers special from her Hall of Fame career. Come on back. We'll save you a seat. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. 
Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.